What is author marketing mastery through optimization, you ask? I'm going to tell you. It's the best way for us authors to make a living selling our books. Are you tired of hearing gurus tell you your book is only good enough to be a lead magnet for services? Are you tired of feeling like you have to be a slave to social media and then frustrated when that time doesn't actually help you sell books? I was too, until I found Ammo. Ammo is the only program that reliably produces results and it works for anyone. Is it hard work? You bet. Do you have to overcome some of your own prejudices to make Ammo work for you? Absolutely. But rather than being another program that rah-rah shish-goom-bahs tries to get you emotionally excited only to offer unclear methods, Ammo shows you how to design profitable ads step-by-step through a unique, never-before-tested formula. The founder, Steve Piper, is a data-loving, formula-driven author who escaped the kingdom of Amazon to build a platform for himself where he sold directly to his readers and built a loyal following. With Ammo, you know who's reading your books, how to contact them, and what they want to read next. If you've always been frustrated with Amazon's wall of mystery, of not knowing who's reading your books, of losing 50 to 70% of the hard-earned money you make through book sales, Ammo solves all of those problems by putting you in the driver's seat and showing you how to fulfill your books directly to your readerships. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. I will confess, it was strange not dropping an episode for you on Monday. Uh, It's been a long time that I've been in the rhythm of two episodes a week, something that I enjoyed greatly. Uh, And it also is necessary right now to be giving you one episode a week and working hard on publishing my novels. I have a couple more out there right now. The Stories of Bogey is available through my website or on Amazon, wherever you prefer to get your books, working hard on the 24-7 of a Russian named Rostov, Ruskov, can't even say my own title, uh, and that is the third part of the Luke in Time Mysteries. Also, I completed Books for Brews. I want to do a special episode to really break it down a little bit later. I'm not going to go on too long here, but in summary, I described it to those that I've told about the event so far as uh, a story of contrasts or the tale of two cities. The morning session was about like anyone would expect worst case scenario to go. I had a total of three people arrive. Uh, Two bought both available paperbacks. One bought The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi and we could hardly get anybody to wander back into the room where we were at. It was discouraging. I was there with my former professor from undergrad. She taught me at the University of Nebraska Omaha. Her name is Margie Lucas, and I would love if you would check out her books, maybe grab a copy because unfortunately she didn't sell any books during the event. Uh, And I feel personally responsible and guilty for that. I did a, a bad job of 
advertising correctly. Um, she's an amazing author. She won a, a major award for her book, River People. I think you'd love it. I have personally read The Farthest House. It's an amazing book. Uh, there's a memorable scene with bees. I feel like I've said this on the podcast before, but anyways, great to have Margie there. She and I are going to be teaming up again with some more authors at an event called The Mill coming up fairly soon. Hopefully that'll go better for both of us. But then the evening was somewhat better. I moved over 40 books at Block 16. Shout out to Jess and Paul, the owners there. Uh, I sent them an email and I'll just sum it up like this because I wanna save some of the details for the real breakdown. Um, but they needed nothing from me. It wasn't as if hosting me gave them a boost in dining uh, customers. They have lines out the door all night long from when they open to when they close. They have a three hour dinner service. Ash and I got there at 4.30. There were already people in line. The entire night, there was a line. There was never not a line. Um, so they didn't need our book event to try to drive any extra customers. And yet, when I walked in the door, they treated me like royalty, like a celebrity. And it was one of the most humbling and encouraging experiences of my author life. So really grateful for them. If you're local to Omaha or ever passing through, write down block 16. The food is out of this world. For a long time, it was the only place that my wife and I went for date nights. Uh, we were so predictable. If we had a night without the kids, block 16. I got the pork roll and she got the dragon wrap, sometimes with chicken, sometimes just plain. So good. The gangsta fries. Mm. They have specials every day too. Anyways, get yourself to block 16. Let them know that they are amazing and tell them I sent you because then at least, you know, they know how much I'm talking about them. Uh, my influence is much smaller. Anyways, now my guest for today's episode is Robin Bradford. She is a library collection development person. <laughs> I, think, I think, I don't know what the actual end of that role is. She does library collection development for the Tacoma, Seattle library system. She got plenty of money and a ton of experience. When I say money, I mean for the library system. I, I have no clue what she makes, hopefully a ton, because she is brilliant, very knowledgeable. Um, even though this is a Wednesday episode and the ongoing theme is gonna be ammo and how people sell their books direct, I'm always gonna bring you the best interviews that I can. I've had this on the, the calendar for quite a while and Robin, way exceeded my expectations and I had high expectations. So if you are an author who wants to get your books in libraries, listen to this episode and also understand that in order to make a robust living, you do need to sell your books in other ways as well. Don't underestimate the power of the library system, but don't put all your eggs just in the library basket. That's different than putting all your eggs in the author basket, which I'd suggest everybody at least try once in their life. It's a worthwhile experience if you really love writing. Without further ado, I want you to please enjoy this conversation with Robin Bradford. This is TRBM Ammo Edition. If you're a published author and want to make a living writing books and selling them to avid readers, you've come to the right place. There's simply no program that's more successful at driving readers 
towards the books you've written. So the only thing you have to worry about is writing a great book. And the system with enamel takes care of the rest. Thanks for listening to this conversation. Tell me a little bit about yourself. We got connected through Omaha Public Library. I've been on a, a journey myself to get into as many libraries as possible. It's tricky. I think that it's a uh, high value if you're able to do it. And I know that you have had some kind of similar experiences. So I'm really excited to hear from you more about that. But uh, how, how did you start into this world? Um, so I've been a librarian for 23 years. Wow. Um, and so you started when you were eight years old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, and before that, I worked in libraries for another eight years. So, wow. Okay. So you started <laughs> when you were born. <laughs> <laughs> so I started in libraries at birth. Um, <laughs> I've worked in academic libraries, but most of the time has been spent in public libraries. And since 2001, so just a year after I started, I started buying fiction for public libraries. Okay. So that has been probably the the bulk of my time has spent buying collections. Gotcha. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about that. I'm going to actually be pretty ignorant of the process, but also for my listeners, I'm going to be extra ignorant of how that whole process works so that anybody here can can kind of understand the nuances of buying collections. What does that even mean? So it it I've worked um I've done collections in three different libraries and it's been different about three different times. A lot of it depends on where you are, how big your library is or your library system. They've all been library systems. Well, one was a single library. Um so that kind of was the outlier. I guess I've done it in four libraries. There you go. But the three have been big library systems consisting of 20 plus branches. Oh, wow. Each one. Okay. So it, it really depends on how you're set up, but in general, you go, you look for things. Um, a lot of things are shown to you. And as you might imagine, it's the big five trad yeah. pub here. Here's a new James Patterson. You're like, thanks. Yeah. But I really didn't need to see that. We have that on automatic order. Right. Put a lot of that on automatic order so that we don't have to think about it. Right. I know I'm going to get that. So I'm going to free up the time looking for that stuff and physically putting in the order, the same order that I put in the last six books that he had. Mm. And I'm going to go take that time and look for other things. And that really has, that's the fun part of the job. That's fascinating. So essentially, um, and, and I'm, I'm just going to speculate, you don't you don't have to answer this if you feel like it's incriminating, but it kind of feels to me like the big five is sort of wasting some of their own dollars by even suggesting you buy uh, James Patterson, because like you said, everybody knows him. The library is and this is no this is no surprise. The library needs to make money. So they're going to buy the books that that patrons are going to check out. James Patterson is going to be a hit whether we love him or not. Um, so you automate that and yet they're still spending money to put his name in front of you. That's weird. It, it makes no sense, although, but it also makes all the sense because yeah. that doesn't happen just in publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, people market 
the thing that's already getting so much marketing? Like, how many commercials am I seeing right now for Barbie and Op- and Oppenheimer? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. So many commercials, but it's on the lips of every single person. So why are you wasting your ad dollars? Yeah, it's but a, they're it's, wasting their ad dollars. So it's it's kind of the same thing. You're gonna see that Patterson book mm-hmm. at every bookstore. You're gonna see it at Costco. You're gonna see mm-hmm. it at Target. That's right. There's really no, it's going to get reviewed. Why do people still review James Patterson? It doesn't matter. If you hate the book and you give it the most scathing review, I'm still buying it. Exactly. In in multiples. (laughs) So (laughs) you could use that that time or that space, that review space for Mm. people who are unseen. But that's not how publishing works. So. It's fascinating. Um, I come from, and this is this is more in my past, but I did uh, real estate investing for a while, and so I was very much aware of the the scene there, kind of paying attention to podcasts on the subject and different people who were big uh, players in that industry. And uh, I can't remember who it was. I'm fairly certain it was a guy named Grant Cardone mentioned that that Coca Cola is the number one spending. Uh, advertiser in the world. They spend more dollars advertising Coca-Cola, which goes right back to this James Patterson thing. So like you said, it makes no sense and it makes all the sense in the world. I think there's something about being at the top that both requires you to spend that money, but makes it look silly. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's, I saw home this probably five or six years ago, James Patterson did a commercial and I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, right. it's your money. I I have nothing to say about that, but it just seems unnecessary. And his yeah. publisher probably has lots of smaller authors who wish they had, you know, twenty five percent of the name recognition. Oh, I would take one percent. Uh, I, I would I would very, very comfortably <laughs> live the rest of my life on one percent of the name recognition that he has. <laughs> so uh, let's do start to talk somewhat about that as well then. So as far as the the building a collection or buying a collection, um, a lot of the stuff that's coming through the big five is is on automatic or the names that we all know. Uh, what point? So I'm going to try to be granular here. So at what point of the big five do you actually still have to do research? Like how many books are coming to you from Canop or Farrar, Strauss and Giroux? Penguin Random House that you actually still have to research and be like, oh, this one looks like a good fit for my collection. I think we only have about 50 authors, maybe not even that many on automatic. Okay. So it's the vast majority that I still have to, what is this about? Oh, can I, do I see how it might fit in our collection? Is there an audience for this? Hmm. What's their past book done if they're not a debut author? Um, I give a lot more leeway to debut authors because there's no past performance to look at. Yeah. So um, I spend a, a lot of time, though, looking up what what did their book do here last time? Because mm. one of the traps when you work when you've worked in multiple places is to just carry over. Yeah. What happened over here to what happened over here. And um, I moved to Washington. I'm in Washington now. Okay. I moved here from Indianapolis. So they're oh, wow. completely different 
completely different customer bases there. Mm. So I can't really say, well, in indie, this book did this kind of business. Yeah. It could be completely different out here. And times have changed. Like mm-hmm. writing has changed. Yes. So people are reading some of the same things, but also a lot of different things. When I was in mm. indie, I didn't have a big push for climate fiction. It just huh. wasn't a thing. I sure. mean, there were a few books here and there, mostly in science fiction mm. um, or dystopia was just starting to kind of be a thing. And yeah. with that, a lot of the dystopian novels are centered on climate change. Yeah. So now it's a much bigger thing and people out here are very interested in it. So yeah, I was looking on my my shelf for a, a book behind me. It's one of the I, I have uh, bookshelves everywhere because you know I'm an author and my podcast are writing. I love this. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And and so I couldn't remember the name of it, and I'm, I still it's I couldn't spot it quick enough. But there's an author named uh, Karen Thompson Walker, I believe, who wrote a, a book that's very uh, climate fiction, but it's literary fiction. She's friends with the uh, vampires and the lemon grove lady. Why in the world I can't remember her name right now is killing but me. But I can see the cover of that book, actually. <laughs> yeah, vampires. Head. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, that's that's an interesting insight. And um, when you say Washington, you mean Washington State. Which part of yeah. the state? Are you on the eastern or western? I'm on the western side. Okay, alrighty. So you've got like Seattle and that type of stuff. Very, yes. Very, very uh, liberal leaning, I guess, is is what I was reaching for. Because yeah. I, I went to um, Eastern Washington University for my MFA, which is on the, the uh, east oh, yeah. side, obviously, of the state. And it's it was I was really surprised. I think I somehow had this assumption that just by being basically West Coast, everything would be more liberal leaning. But that is a very, very conservative part of the state. I mean, like, it, I imagine that that Spokane is Trump land and I haven't been there in a little while and this isn't a political podcast, but it's just so interesting to think along the lines of what you were saying that uh, collections are going to vary based on the kind yeah. of people who are there and to take like what would work in Indiana and then try to transpose it to Seattle or uh, Kent or anything like that's just not going to happen. It's one of the, one of the big traps of, of doing collection development if you move around. Like if you're in the same place, a, a, a version of that is if you stay in the same place, you don't see the change happening around you. Yeah. And that happened, I was in Indianapolis for 14 years. Oh, wow. And we could see that happening mostly with our foreign language collections where staff in the branches would say, you know, we don't need these books here. You know, we don't have this community here. And the census, which is what we were looking at, was saying something very different. And mm. it, and you don't, it happens so gradually sometimes, you don't notice it happening. New yeah. families are moving in. And because you are there and you're like, I know this, this community, I've been here for this amount of years, but the community has changed. Yeah, and absolutely. So there's, there's that trap that can happen on both ends, whether you're coming into a new community or whether you're, you've been in the community for a long time. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about as we, as we go even narrower. So we were talking about the big five and, and like you said, you only have about 50 authors on automatic, everything else is being researched. 
I'm trying to think of like the small presses, the the gray wolves out there or something like that. And they're, they're actually still bigger than a lot of smaller presses, yes. but um, you know, presses that aren't big five, but they're, they're not uh, self-published. Let's put, a, right. I guess we can chunk everything there. Uh, how much like the angry robots? Yes. Thank you. Exactly. $2 radio, that kind of thing. Um, how much are, are they driving your awareness versus you doing your best to be aware of them? What what would you say is the percentage of incoming, hey, I'm here by my book versus you being like, oh, I see you there. That looks like a great book. Oh, it's not very much. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see them unless I go looking for them. Yeah. A lot of times I see them in places that aggregate books like uh, Edelweiss, is a great source because you can go in there and say, I just want to look at science fiction and fantasy that is published um, starting today for the next three months in adult Mm. in these formats. And it will give you a list of everything. And in that you're seeing people who have put their books up on Edelweiss and not necessarily just review copies, but just as, Hey, my book is coming out. Wow. So, but I, that's still me having to go look for them. Yeah. I don't get a lot of direct marketing from, uh, from small pubs at all. That's my feeling too. And I think my, my notion right now is that small presses and uh, self-published authors are not understanding the vastness of the library market. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but here, here are some assumptions and I'd love for you to correct me if I, if I step off the path, but my assumption is if I do a professional job and let's pretend I'm, I'm, I'm a small press or independent, it doesn't matter which, let's just pretend that I do a good job being professional. And so I present to you a book that is, uh, professionally edited, professionally formatted, professionally designed. It looks great. And you decide to buy that book. The first time that I do that is the hardest fight that I'll have in some sense, because you have nothing to go on and I have no name to back me up. You said at one point already in this conversation that in some ways you're more lenient for a first time author. But at the same time, part of that, I and this is again an assumption, so correct me if I'm wrong, but part of that is because they have a press behind them and that press has already kind of quality controlled them. So if you're talking about indie, it's even harder that first time. Once the book arrives on your shelves or in your digital collection, if you see strong checkout numbers for it, I bet you that the second book that comes out, you're sort of like, yeah, it makes sense. That made us money. That was a reason people were coming into the library. I'm going to pick up their next book. So it becomes easier as they build the relationship with you. And eventually it may never be on automatic because there's only a couple of James Patterson's out there, but it's going to be a quick email to you that says, Hey, Robin, I've got this book coming out. Can we, can we get it in your collection? And you just say, absolutely. Is, are right. those assumptions correct insofar as they're general, but, but yeah. For the most part, absolutely. I would say it's not necessarily because there's a press behind the debut authors that we buy them. That's just how we know they exist. Mm. And so yeah. it's really, I, I do teach collection development to libraries that are silly enough to hire me and I love them. And I tell them you can't buy what you don't know about. And mm. that's 
basically what it comes down to, like getting the discoverability hurdle is the biggest hurdle. Um, Once I know you exist, then I start looking at what is your book about and is that a subject or genre that is popular in my library? Yeah. And for the most part, that's everything. So there's a good chance then we start looking at other things like pricing and and all of that. Um, and what time of year it is, do I still have money left? Mm, yeah. Also a, a big a big indicator. But the discoverability piece is the hardest piece because if yeah. I have no idea that a book exists, then I can't buy it. And there I think people underestimate the amount of books that are published every year. Oh, I mean, it's it's really crazy to me to think about, and, and again, just talking about presses right now, the number of books that are coming out through all of the various presses is mind-boggling. And then yes. you have uh, self-published people who are publishing at astounding rates. Yes. I, I had a literary agent. So everybody who listens to the podcast kind of knows my story. So I'm telling it to you, not so much them, but I had a literary agent for three years on a book that I... Uh, largely wrote in the wake of getting my MFA, really proud of it. She loved it. We were excited. We thought we could sell it everywhere we went. It wasn't quite right. Finally, I got an offer and they wanted to publish me in 2025. And I just was like, I can't wait that long. (laughs) It's already been three years. I'm going to wait another basically three from the time I got the offer to be on shelves. And it wasn't even a big press. I didn't, I knew I was going to lose a lot of control. So uh, I, I sort of like ate my pride and self-published the book. I knew I had the faculties and the experience to do it well. I also knew it was going to be a, a harder journey in certain ways. What I realized, if I'm going to be a self-published author and be successful, is I have to write a little bit faster uh, than the traditional publishing schedule. In order to take advantage of that channel of the world that reads self-published books, I need books coming out on the regular. And that's a, that's a huge difficulty. So it's almost like the world of literature is bending itself toward this kind of demand. And it's forcing a a bit of a division between traditionally published and self-published authors. With all of that said, what is your process with self-published authors? Because I I think that there's a lot of mythiness about self-published authors in libraries. And and my guess is that it's much more nuanced than, than some people will say. Let's start broad with that question and kind of narrow down into it. So I have spent probably the past 15 years trying to get libraries and librarians to stop being scared (laughs) of self-pub authors. Yeah. And it is an ongoing process. I've had some success thanks to basically eBooks and patrons coming in and saying, you know, I want this book Mm. and not caring whether it was trad pub or indie pub, like they don't care. They just right. want to read the book. So I will say like, the, all that to say that my process is not everybody's process. And yep. I, um, I'll outline it for you. But please understand that right. libraries are, are still very gunshot about yeah. ordering indie pub. For me, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I literally yeah, yeah. do not care because I buy genre fiction. And because I want a diverse collection, those two things automatically put indie pub and self pub in my in my in my face. Yeah, because that's 
where the diversity arc was happening first, mm, uh, yeah. Chad Pub was very uh, skeptical. Yeah, and we have our one Indian American author, and we don't need another one. I mean, that's kind oh, of wow. Do you do you really? Uh, was it was it that black there, and white? There are people if you go on Twitter or wherever people are hanging out now and listen to authors talk, especially diverse authors, yeah. you will hear those stories. Oh we have gosh. our one for right now, so we don't need any. Wow. Okay. Um, and it's like, seriously? That's crazy. You, you know, we're we're not all the same. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. We'd be writing okay. completely different books. Yeah. So a lot of people were turning to self-pub to get their books in front of people that they knew would like them if they only had a chance to see them um and so once that started happening we started getting requests for things Mm. and once you start getting requests for things and then you're like well what else is out there i remember Mm. uh, probably three or four years ago it's longer than that the, the pandemic messes with time probably like five or six years ago i would get these patron requests for lesbian romance Mm -hmm. and i was like why am I getting all of a sudden, why am I getting all of these requests? I would get none. And then all of a sudden we had a a policy that you could do five requests a week and like clockwork, I would get five every week. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So apparently a, I'm not buying enough Mm -hmm. and B there's an audience. Well, those are the two things that I need to buy books. Yeah. I just need to know that there is an audience for it and that it's out there. It was out there. I just wasn't seeing it in the regular order of things. They were published by very small indie presses, so they weren't even self-pub. It was just indie presses that didn't market in the places where I was looking. Yeah. So part of that is I need to look in other places, but also buy the things. So I would buy the requests, buy the requests, and then buy above the requests. Nice. So that people yeah. don't have to keep asking for things. Right. Wow. So, there's two. There's two forks that I want to. I want to pursue right now, and one of them is Hoopla because uh, part of part of what you're talking about is is strangely solved by Hoopla, but almost in there's there's almost a predatory element to Hoopla that I think a lot of patrons don't understand, which is that if the library took off the constraints of Hoopla, you could yes. go broke really quickly. And that <laughs> happened at my previous library. We yeah. had to discontinue Hoopla because yeah. we spent way more than we could afford to spend. Yeah, yeah. And people it's, were mad, I mean, yeah. which I understand because once you give something to people, when you mm-hmm. take it away, that is a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, but we, it, it was so pop. We were a victim of our own success. It was so popular that we couldn't afford to keep having. Absolutely. I love Hoopla. Hoopla has made my world yes. so much easier because my, my eBooks and my audiobooks are available through Hoopla. And so like the minute that that happened, I started making money on checkouts across the country. You know, I went from being like, I had to approach every single library system independently to just boom, it's available. And now it's a, it's an awareness thing. I need to let people know it's out there and, and start benefiting from that. And I get paid every time that something gets checked out through Hoopla. It's a cool system for an author it's a scary one for libraries and there has to be these, these pretty strict constraints in order to make it work. Um, the other thing that I wanted to, to talk about was you mentioned 
requests for books. So one of the things on this podcast, especially that I talk to my listeners about is, hey, you need to have a good system built up to find the right person to request your book be carried in their library. You need to know how to do it. You need to know the the process and all of those kind of things. What's the weight for you on an author coming and correctly identifying their niche inside of your library and, and giving you the reason why it belongs there versus a patron requesting the book. So if I come to you and say, Hey, Robin, will you carry my book? Versus if uh, Bob comes to you and says, Hey, I heard about this author uh, with X book, which one has more weight for you? Just a single request. Yeah. The patron has more weight. Yeah. Um, Just because we tend to think, well, of course an author is going to say, buy my book. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Why wouldn't they? That's their job. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if we have someone who's not the author coming and saying, hey, I heard about this book. Can you carry it? That does carry a little bit more weight. Yeah. That said, I have plenty of authors who just put in patron requests. And I don't tend to look at the name of who is doing the request. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. that's that's just me, though. Again, other people right, no. do check the names because they want to make that. I don't care. I see a request for something Mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, somebody here, there's a, there's an audience for it. So then off we go looking to see if we can find it, where it is, what form it comes in and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I will tell you that library systems are very, very different. Um, I'm outing myself publicly here in that I will use <laughs> uh, I will use the digital library patron card. So I'll get myself a digital card at a library to experience what their collection is like, even though I don't list, uh, live there. And I still have like eight or 10 different library systems that that have never kicked me off. So I'm able to use like their their overdrive. (laughs) Uh, I know, exactly. But the reason that I originally started doing it was to experience what the collections were like and what that process was like. And what I did realize myself is that some libraries aren't as careful about excluding me from requesting books. So I can request books outside of my living area. When I started, when I started seeing that loophole, I did actually have kind of an ethical concern about it because I thought I'm not actually in their, you know, zone. So I I recognized that it was happening, but I think that it speaks to what you're talking about is that, um, well, and here's a good example. My Lincoln Public Libraries, we have a reciprocal uh, relationship with them. So I can very rightfully have a card with them and they have Hoopla. Omaha does not. Omaha is a far bigger market, but it's in a city that maybe doesn't prize literature quite as much as Lincoln does. Lincoln's got the big university. It's got a lot of students. It's got a lot of arts and cultures more so. And so it has a more robust library. And I think that that's reflected in the relationship I have with them. Uh, do you experience that as well? Is that, am I, am I too far off the mark there? No, um, that makes perfect sense. I think a lot of libraries have different policies when it comes to who, who can request books. And I'm just sitting here thinking, I don't know what my own library's policy is um, <laughs> yeah. for who can request books. And a lot of that is, I figure if the request has gotten to me, it has gotten through whatever layers that would stop it if it wasn't supposed to be here. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I figure by the time it's gotten to me, it's already been seen by two or three people. Yeah. We're good. So yeah. if I see it, then I can act on it. Yeah. Um, a lot of, and I think also 
for bigger libraries, they are less careful because they have the budget that can handle it. Mm -hmm. And yep. for smaller libraries, they're like, nope, <laughs> you have to be, you know, a card holder. Um, we have a lot of reciprocal borrowing here between library systems. Mm -hmm. And I know that my previous system was like, no, um, we can't afford to let reciprocal borrowers request materials. So yeah. you could check out anything you oh, want. Oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah. But when it comes to things like ILL, mm -hmm. um, getting books from outside of our system, no, you had to go to your home library for that and, and also requests. Yes. Um, so okay. So really one thing, real quick, for anybody who's listening, ILL is interlibrary lending. Yes. Sorry. Okay. No. No. You're sorry, fine. Yes. That's that's that's. Um, I, I've done it one time, and I didn't get what I thought I was getting, which was so sad. I wanted the audiobook version of a John Cheever, the stories of Cheever, and it, you couldn't find it anywhere. I did an ILL request out in Spokane, and it ended up being cassette tapes, which I was like, I literally cannot play cassette tapes. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I uh, imagine my excitement when they're like, your your ILL is here. And I was like, like yes. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> so anyways, um, carry on. I'm sorry I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was that was pretty much it. So some library systems um really are stringent about who can do what, but yeah. not every library system is like that. So let's get a little bit, I don't want to spend too much time here, but kind of into the nitty gritty. I had a great, great, knowledgeable man on the podcast named Eric Otis Simmons. I just listened to that this morning. Oh, lovely. He is so phenomenal. I am a huge fan of his. He was a big piece of me actually just starting to learn about this whole process. I found him early on uh, and... I'm just so grateful for the work that he has done. Um, but but he he and I had this like a little disagreement about how books were acquired and how pricing works and everything. And so I live in this tiny town. I went down to my librarian, Rosa, and I asked her, I said, okay, I need to have a better sense of pricing here. If I'm uh, going to set the price of my book for acquisition from libraries, what do I do for physical copies versus digital copies? And what she told me was digital copies, eBooks and audiobooks are uh, probably safe for, for most people at two X. So double the cost, but physical copies should be no less than 40% discounted. Is that uh, accurate to your understanding? And, and maybe you don't even actually live in that, the world of finance. So maybe that's not a question you can answer. I, I didn't, but I do now. Okay. 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 <laughs> um, so for physical books, most libraries order either from Baker and Taylor or from Ingram. Yep. And most library systems get a discount from there. So I looked up your books today. Oh, okay. And I think they were priced at somewhere between $13 and $16. Yes, that's um, correct. And we get a discount on that from Ingram. Oh, perfect. Okay. So I forgot what the actual price was. There's a button you can press to see what they will actually charge you, but it was less than oh, the good. list okay. price. And so that's actually whatever I did when I set it up with Ingram is because they, they give me a little bit of control over what I decide I want to discount them. So the, the physical books were showing as discounted in my case. Yes. Okay. Well, cool. Okay. So for digital books, Digital is kind of the Wild West right yeah. now. There is no standard. Okay. Um, I have seen 
the talking points of two times, I would say I would caution people against that because right. digital digital is expensive. Okay. For the things that we must buy. So the James Patterson's. Um I just looked up it was a Michael Conley, the last Michael Conley yeah. that we had last year. It's $75. What? We okay. have 43 of them because that was the demand. It's gone out 800 <laughs> It's gone out 816 times. Sure, it's made so you money. You can see the demand which makes the cost per circ $3.95, which okay. is a little higher than mm-hmm. I like. I like to stay around $2 per circ. Mm-hmm. Um but it's it's Michael Conley and if we so- didn't have it we- would get killed. So right, yeah. A couple of things there though is that that's today. So it, and this is for my understanding and I guess my audience. But in two months from now, it maybe has gone out another two hundred times, and so that cost this is the one goes from down. Last fall, so it's okay. It's gotcha. Had its major surge. Gotcha. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So, but it will it will somewhat go down over time. Yeah, it will now, still go out, but it yeah. won't have that mass surge that it had Absolutely. in November of last year. Okay, so th- let's stop here real quick because there's a couple of questions that I've always wondered about for my own library is, uh, for for example, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, you have to know about that book because I think it got recommended by a big TV personality and suddenly every library had 975 copies of it and you still had to wait six months to get yours. Yes. Um, <laughs> but so what I'm curious about is when that surge goes away and it starts to be a more normal book is there a way to offload those copies or now that you own them you own them forever they're just part of your digital collection for all of eternity i think there is a way that you can well it depends so another interesting thing about digital copies is some of them expire Mm. and some of them Ah, don't expire and it depends on the publisher Okay. Um, how they have set up their digital lending. Mm. So some of them will go away on their own. Okay. And some of them, yes, you own, you know, for however long you have overdrive or, or whatnot. Yeah. Um, I think there is a way to get rid of some of those copies, but there's generally no reason to. Right. Because they're not say. taking up any space. Yep. And you've already paid for them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You might as well just let them sit there. Yeah. That was part of my thinking on why it made sense to me that digital assets might cost double uh, and physical assets would be discounted is because uh, digital assets will never go away. So once you sell it, you've you've hit your your sales for that library versus um, even a sturdy paper or excuse me, uh, hardback only has maybe a year to two years on a shelf before if it's read robustly anyways it's going to start to fall apart well the thing about digital um so we don't start off buying. we didn't start off buying 43 copies um right. we bought up to meet demand yep so we probably started off with like five or ten and then um everybody wanted to read it and yeah. we had to add copies the thing that I always caution self-pub authors with is if you don't have that name behind you, we mm-hmm. bought those copies because he's Michael Conley. Exactly. So if you're not Michael Conley mm-hmm. um, and you want to price yourself as if you are, and I have seen self-pub authors put right. their books 
for $75. Wow. And I laughed. And I'm like, I don't want to pay Hachette $75 for Michael Conley. Like, that's not what I wish I could do. Right. But I have to because he's Michael Conley. Yeah. I don't have to buy your book. I don't know who you are. (laughs) So if you price it at $75, it will sit there. Yeah. I'm not buying it. That makes perfect sense to me. I think I think in my case, I think that my books are priced uh, and, and I've experimented with pricing a little bit. So I may be a buck or two off somewhere here, but I think that my books are priced six ninety nine, um, And so I think I put my library pricing as as uh, $13.99, I believe is the case um, for, the, for the digital copies. The other thing, well, it also also I mean, underpinning all of this is how much money you have for your collection. Right. So if you only have enough money for your digital collection to buy Nora Roberts and James Patterson and John Grisham, right. then that doesn't leave you much. Yeah. So Chad Pub is taking a lot of money that doesn't leave much. But if you do, and we do, we have enough to buy those and also buy other things. Yep. $13.99 or $15.99 or in, anywhere in that range up to about... $18.99 about the ceiling for trade paperbacks. I don't bat an eye, really. That, to me, is all reasonably priced. When I start getting nitpicky and start <laughs> calculating cost per circ and all of that is when you go over that, because now I'm making a significant investment hmm. in something that I need to know it's going to go out. Yep. I spend a lot of time experimenting with our digital collection because the prices range from two ninety nine, mm-hmm. sometimes even lower, to some astronomical price. But anything in this middle of the road, sure, why not? I'll give yeah. it a shot and we'll see what happens. Because what happens is people check out things from our digital collection. Things that I never thought would check out there was something I bought the other day about it was a werewolf romance, gay mm-hmm. werewolves. Yeah. People were like, yes, I need that. And it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Old list. yeah. And I'm like, I love, I love shifter romance too. So I get it. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who wrote it. It doesn't uh-huh. matter, you know, who published it. They saw it. They're like, this looks interesting. And that happens a lot. Yeah. So I don't mind experimenting. If I can afford to, when you start getting into 25 and I, there's a, an author that consistently prices their books at like 39 99. It's a self pub author. Yeah. We're not buying it. Yeah. We're not buying it. That's $40 for someone. That's that's four other books that you could have bought. Yeah. That's four other books. And also we don't know who you are. Yeah. And also it's part of a series all your books are that price. If right. I buy one, I'm going to have to buy them all. I'm sucked into buying the other ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my my wife, um, it's it's such a funny story because when we got married, uh, she'd read a bit of John Grisham and some other things like that. She wasn't, I would say, definitely not an avid reader. Uh, and we were young. We got married at 25. And so she was still in a period of her life where she kind of judged her mom for her mom's reading taste, but her mom was an avid romance reader. And uh, so... We're going along and in her vows too, I don't know if I've actually told this on the podcast before, but part of her vows were that she would root for the Chicago Cubs. And the other part is that she would always 
you know, support my writing career. Cause those were two things that were important to me that I knew about myself as a human. I know it's awful. I'm dated. Okay. It's been well, a I'm bit. A White Sox fan, so that's just why I'm laughing. Oh, oh no. Well, it's a better year for me so far, but <laughs> um, she, she wasn't really reading anything. And I said to her one day, I was like, Hey babe, why don't you just check out romance and see what you think of it? I mean, that, like it's not embarrassing, but she, she, that's what it was for her is that for a while she was embarrassed. What if people find out I read romance? And I said, uh, then they find out you read romance. I'm, I don't care if you read it, just check it out, see what you think. And at this point, she through the library, through Libby now, by the way, let me just expose a beef I have. Overdrive was infinitely better than Libby. I hate Libby compared to Overdrive, but that's just me with <laughs> a little beef. Okay. My wife reads. 200 to 250 books a year. And I would say three of them are not romance. She is voracious. I, I You have to experience that that's true of that particular genre. Absolutely. And in fact, I wrote a book, The ALA Guide to uh, Romance Readers Advisory. Oh, I can't even remember the title of amazing. my own book. So yes, I am also a huge romance fan and I know a lot of huge romance fans. Yeah. And they read a lot. Uh, Overdrive always says romance is the genre that keeps the lights on. Yeah, that is true. That is absolutely true. I love that. I'm so glad that we stopped right there. And I also, it's a perfect spot because one thing I have not done is that I haven't, I haven't really highlighted what you've done. You're a, a trailblazer in that uh, probably a time when libraries were not as open to genre fiction you realized how important it was. So I'm giving you an opportunity now to kind of toot your own horn. Talk a little bit about what you saw as being important about genre fiction and why you kind of made a crusade to bring it to the forefront of libraries, generally speaking. I grew up as a genre fiction lover. So when I came to libraries, that was kind of my agenda <laughs> the whole time. Um, and one, once I did come to library, public libraries, I should say, I saw that this is what people were reading. I grew up as a fantasy and science fiction reader and then came to romance and then came to mystery. Um, so this was kind of, this is what I knew. And what I was seeing in libraries was this is what people were passionate about. Yeah, They would come in and check out, you know, your language books, your dictionaries, your history, whatever. But they were passionate about genre fiction, literary fiction. People, a lot of people read it because they felt that they needed to or they should. But when people got excited, it was about genre fiction. And libraries were very haphazard in how they collected it and yeah. what they did with it. Some libraries didn't even catalog their romance collection. They just put really? it on spinner racks and said, oh, those people yeah. will read anything. Almost like a gas station. It doesn't matter if we you know, put it in the catalog or not. And meanwhile, romance had shifted from single titles to series, a lot of series. And so people were very much interested in the next book in their series by that person, not this person, but that person. And they couldn't find it because we weren't cataloging it. Yeah. And so wow. I, I really started a crusade of we have to treat romance, especially, but all genre fiction like the rest of the collection and just do the right thing put it in the catalog, 
Yeah. Make sure that people can find it. Yeah. Um, don't shelve it haphazardly. We still, I come across libraries sometimes that say, oh, well, we just shelve all the bees together. What? Really? What? That feels like a, that feels like a used bookstore to me more than anything. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes. Okay. And so really when I'm out talking to libraries, I tell people to you, this is not a thing that we should be doing. Um, right. We should be accepting that people read what they want, what they love. And it only helps the library if you're treating it a different way. Yeah. It's yeah. going to make your cert go up. It's going to make people want to use you and see your value. Yeah. There's something really interesting in here. Um, it piggybacks on a, a conversation I had recently with one of my guests in that. Um, so my first uh, adventure into writing books was kind of short stories. That's what you do in, in in college. You write short stories because those are manageable bits that you can trade among your peers and talk about in a single classroom setting. So it's a lot of short stories. So I had this huge collection of short stories I'd written over six years of college. And I started to immediately recognize that I wanted something that felt like a novel. Um, and I'll give a shout out to David Philip Mullins. Um, he teaches at Creighton here. He wrote a book called Greetings from Below. It's a collection of short stories that reads like a novel kind of. So you could read each one independently and be fine. But when you read them together in the order that they are in the book, out by Saraband Press, it feels very much like a complete novel. You get to see this guy's life from kind of youngest childhood to mature adulthood. Um, and so I wrote this book called The Stories of Bogey. Really proud of it. It's uh, part memoir, part novel, all mashed together, but extremely literary. And it's 470 pages. And nobody, I mean, nobody was like, hey, an unknown author from Omaha. I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to anything. So I couldn't get an agent. I couldn't get a book deal. So I wrote genre. I wrote detective fiction. That's kind of like a mashup of Groundhog Day meets uh, The Big Sleep. And that very quickly got an agent. It was like instantaneously. I had several authors. Yeah, it was, it was great. And like I said, at three years, I didn't ultimately sell it. Um, but genre fiction is this beautiful thing that's accessible to anybody. And yet underneath all of it, we have an agenda. I think, um, you talked earlier about, uh, diversity. There's an agenda inside of diversity to be like, Hey, numb skull, this world is full of people who are not like you. And I'd like to put that person in front of you and let them shine so that you can possibly grow. And, and I am, I'm leaning fiction in this conversation right now, but a novel has this beautiful ability to put uh, a person with black skin in front of you and show you what makes that person very uniquely black and specially black and yet relatable, you know, different but relatable. And so all of that tied into a great sci-fi adventure or a crime mystery. And suddenly we're, we're like getting underneath biases and prejudices. And so our novels are layered. I know this is a long, I've got on my soapbox now, but this is a long explanation to say nothing does it better <laughs> than, than genre, in my opinion, of subverting our expectations and teaching us to expect uh, and, and embrace diversity. What are your thoughts there? Because you, I know you're passionate about this and I almost want you to take your own soapbox too. <laughs> so the, the very interesting thing, we talk about this all the time, um, both in libraries and on social media in terms of romance and the genre, in terms of books in general. 
One of the very interesting things about that is it's something people think that diverse books and the movements around diverse books are new. But even when I was a kid and I was reading X-Men, underneath all of that was the push for diversity. It, they didn't look, they looked a little bit different. Um, it what we weren't specifically talking about religion or mm-hmm. immigration status or skin color. We were talking about mutants and we yeah. were giving them humanity, even though to everyone else they looked different. So, or they had different powers. People were scared of them. But here they're showing you how they're just like. They're very relatable, even if they're not just like us, because I can't fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But still, they have the same issues, the same human problems that the rest of us have. And you fall in love with them month to month because this is, you know, how fiction works. You get to know a character and you follow that character or group of characters. It's the same thing now. Yeah. Um, one of the funniest things that people would say about, especially about Black romance, was that we just can't relate to the people. And Weird. it's like, okay. really? So you can't relate to these two Black characters who are doing anything, especially in contemporary romance. In historical romance, maybe it's a little different because the times are more fraught. Um, But in contemporary romance, it's, you know, a basketball player and his agent, and they're not supposed to fall in love, but of course they do. And you can't relate to that, but you can relate to a hockey player and his agent, and they're not supposed to fall in love, but of course they do. Like that's, it makes no sense. Um, And also there is this thing with paranormal romance. So vampires, werewolves, whatever. You can relate to that but you can't relate to these black people. Yeah. So once people started pointing that out, it got a little bit better and perhaps shame works sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But also you social media, you start interacting with these authors and you enjoy what they're saying. You're having That's a good time a together online. Yeah. Maybe I should pick up their book. Maybe yeah. it's not so scary. Yeah. Or even I watched The Wire and that had black people in it. And I like those <laughs> yeah. characters. Why yep. can't I read a book that was written by Colson Whitehead or Beverly yeah. Jenkins or yeah. you know? You Tony mentioned uh, yeah, the the, the Marvel comics, Tana Hesse Coates. Why not read his books? I mean, now he's exactly. writing for Black Panther, right? Is that am I am I yeah. So I mean Exactly. So it it the I think the interaction helped but there was very much a divide you know if i'm reading books by white people and people don't hesitate to recommend books to me by white people <laughs> and still won't read black people. and i'm like yeah then why do you think that i want to read this yeah oh yeah. well that's i never thought of it that way of course 
you did. So uh, the, I want I want to walk into this piece of the conversation because it's so, so important. I did a little hitchhiking trip in my youth. Um, and when I say my youth, I was of drinking age. So I'm, um, you know, not like young, young, but I went from Omaha, Nebraska to Washington, D.C. My friend and his wife were having their first baby. Uh, and along the way, I had so many exciting uh, experiences. I've got a book in the works right now that sort of it fictionalizes it a little bit, but more true than people will probably realize. At the end of the road, I had a friend all the way back from my days serving tables. So when I was below drinking age, um, and she knew a black man who lived in Washington, D.C., who was willing to house me for just a little bit. So I got there, I hung out with my friend, saw the birth of their baby, then I needed to get out from underfoot. Obviously, I hitchhiked. So I went and stayed with him. And he went to a black church. And I remember going with him to that church, walking into that church and experiencing being the only white person in a place. And it was a feeling. I don't know what the, it was a feeling to be a minority. There's one other time in Chicago, I went to a McDonald's with my dad and my brother and I, and my dad were the only white people in that McDonald's. And both times will be forever imprinted on me. And then when I, when I apply, (laughs) when I apply that to the world that I live in, is extremely challenging, I think, to be a Black person in ways that I don't think a lot of the white culture really appreciates. And so we start to talk about diversity and we start to talk about um, privilege and too much political stuff comes up with it. It's just a feeling. Like I would love to just say it feels weird to not see myself reflected in the people around me. And yet, like you said, when I start to interact with an author of another color, whether it is uh, a Mexican author or a Puerto Rican author or uh, a Nigerian author, the moment that I start to recognize that person as a human, something really cool happens. And then not only can I love that book, but I can feel myself in that book. I can actually put myself in that person's shoes. That's a cool experience. I I don't want to go too much further with that. And you don't even necessarily have to respond if you don't want to, but uh, I'll give you the opportunity if there's anything else in there that that sparked for you. I think a lot of times people are put off by the idea that they're not centered in the book and you don't have to be, the, the book doesn't have to be specifically written with you in mind for you to enjoy it. And that happens a lot because I read books. I mean, I grew up and still read books by white people because they're the majority of the authors. And I know that when they're writing that book, they're not saying this book is written for a almost middle-aged black woman. That's not the person that they're writing to. And yet you can still relate to the book. I am not unique in that. Other people can do the same thing. So when an Indian American uh, Sonali Dev is writing about Indian authors, I don't necessarily have to um, be Indian American to understand what she's writing. Yeah. And her book isn't also the the flip side of that is, well, yes, I read those books so that they teach me her book doesn't need to teach me anything um her book was written to entertain it's a romance so she's writing a romance to entertain if you learn something that you didn't know that's fantastic yeah but that doesn't have to be the purpose of her book for it to be 
valuable. It's valuable just because it's a good book. That's phenomenal. I honestly probably I need to reflect more on what you just said because I mean I, I don't think I've ever thought of it exactly that that way before. So let's talk a little bit about libraries from I walked into uh, not Omaha, not Lincoln. There's there's a couple of other library systems that exist within kind of my world. Uh, and I went into one personally carrying my books and I had the opportunity to talk to the assistant director and I showed her my books and I kind of told her my story. And I didn't even, I wasn't even pitching at that point to have them pick up the books into their collection, but just saying like, how would it go about having this conversation? And I got the real distinct feeling that she looked down on me. And I, that, that can just be a human experience, but these are self-published books. And so I was curious from your perspective, you've talked a lot in this conversation about every library system is going to be a little bit different. Some are going to be more open like yourself. Some are going to be a little bit more close to self-published authors. What do you think are the critical steps that, that we should take if we're with a small press and and I will I will qualify that by saying this particular person said to me we pretty much only buy from the big five so we can we can put all of the less than big five presses together plus self published and still have this conversation what's the best possible thing you can do to put your best foot forward to get somebody to maybe break out of their their perspectives their prejudices and give you the time of day what do you look for like what stands out to you. So I would say the first thing you can do is make sure that you're talking to the right person. Mm. In my library system, if you walked into a branch and did that, they would just say, we don't buy books here. Our books are centrally purchased. And Ah. hopefully they would direct you to my email or something. Um, But make sure that you're talking to the right person, because if you're not, that makes it easy for them to dismiss you. And that's, you're trying to make it less easy. So yeah. uh, make sure that you're, you've got the right person. Okay. Um, the second thing I would say is I, and again, this is just me. I love to know when an author is local. Yes. I, for that same leeway that I give to debut authors, I absolutely give to local authors and even local ish. So Pacific Northwest, not yeah. just Washington, not just my yeah, Midwest, um, Pacific Northwest. Services. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I want, because in my head and I don't, I don't have any stats to back this up, but I imagine that people are more interested. They're more likely to have their interest peaked if somewhere on that back cover copy, it mentions their location. So if it says set in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. I imagine people are going to say, I'm a little bit more interested in this now. Um, The third thing is I, you have to sell me on what the book is about because that is how I market and promote it. So if the book is a mystery, then that's what I need to know. Not, you know, that you live here. That's good. I I like to know that, but I want to know how can I get people to check this out? And a lot of what we should be doing in libraries is we buy the book. If we just put it up on our new bookshelf and hope for serendipity, yeah, somebody might check it out. Yes. Mm-hmm. But if we put it on a display with mysteries, that is zeroing in on who might want to read it. Yeah. So instead of saying, good luck, 
yeah, <laughs> book right, I exactly. hope to buy, um, we're giving it a little bit of a push and saying, if you like this, mm-hmm. try these mysteries, or here are some Pacific Northwest mysteries, or, yeah. you know, something that is going to make people take a second look. Yeah. Because again, there are so many books. Yeah, absolutely. So what I hear in there too is is start local and really, really work on making sure every library system within your local-ish uh, region is carrying your books and that they're they're doing well. Um, and some well, of the things- If you have your books in Hoopla, you've got a head start because yes, now sure. you're not an unknown name. Yeah. Now you're a name that's already in their system. They didn't pick it. Because yeah. Hoopla gives you everything and then lets people decide if they want to check it out. Yep. So they didn't pick it. So they may not know that you're already in their catalog, but you are. Yeah. And so now you can say, here I am in Hoopla. Not everybody reads digitally. Not everybody can read digitally yep. or wants to. How about having a couple of copies in print for people who yeah. prefer to read prints or don't have access to, you know, an e-reader. Yeah, exactly. I I so much, I so much love that. It it started to make me think when you're talking about this, uh, about other ways that maybe you can gain advantage as you're going along. Um, I'm doing an event tomorrow uh, called Books for Brews. And uh, anybody listening to the podcast probably heard a little bit about it, but um, I partnered with Stories Coffee here in Omaha and I partnered with Block 16. Shout out to both of those places, by the way, for just being amazing establishments for food and drink. Awesome, amazing, lovely. If you happen to listen in Omaha, uh, hit those places up, whether I'm there or not, they're great. Um, but I'm gonna be I'm gonna be selling my books. And if you buy a copy of my book, I'll buy you um, a, a cup of coffee or a beer, you know, and maybe an order of fries. Like I'll, I'll give some options for for everybody out there. But uh, my vision for this event is if I could drive enough social proof toward it that I could actually put together something for libraries and say, hey, this is what I was able to do. I would love to partner with you um, and have some kind of event with a a library. And then maybe as I grow that, then I can take my success with Omaha Public Libraries and Lincoln Public Libraries and jump out to Kansas City and then Chicago. And then am I thinking along the right lines? Those things help. Do you you believe that that my thinking there is correct? It is. And I would say even if there are local book fests or conventions or something like that, getting on a panel of authors would be great. Or I'm uh, going to BoucherCon, the mystery conference at the end of the month. And so conferences and panels are very much on my mind. And there's a lot of authors that are going that I don't know yet, but I'm going to see them Mm. on panels and then you know, depending on what their books are, they will probably end up in my library. I went to a science fiction convention that's held here every year, just a little bit north of us. And a lot of self-pub authors there were there and I ordered their books because I didn't know they existed before. But a lot of them are local-ish to me and they're independent authors and sometimes just seeing them, hearing them talk about their books. I didn't, I haven't read their books, but they sounded like they might be things people would be interested in. Mm. So we spend a lot of time giving things a chance. 
I love that. I love I love that libraries are more than anybody understands places where uh, books are given a chance. I think yes. you know it, it, we don't we don't think about that enough. There are too many self-published authors and small presses that are not thinking about libraries at the 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 level that they should. And so I'm not going to go full soapbox, but I am going to say that in my ideal, <laughs> I enjoy talking to you so much. Um, <laughs> in my ideal world, uh, self-published authors, indie presses, small presses, put some pressure on libraries to carry a more diverse uh, collection of books that forces the big five to reconsider everything that they're doing. And this is not me coming from a bitter place. This is me coming from the place of, I have seen evidence of the fact that too much of the big five is based on the bottom dollar without understanding that the actual dollar is driven by the relatability, not the name. Um, And I would love to see that change. And I think that that change can happen through libraries. It happens. It just happens so slowly. So when I was talking about the person who was doing the requesting of the five lesbian romance books um, every week, now when you look at LGBTQ fiction from um, the big five, specifically in romance, I I don't know about the other genres, a good portion of it is lesbian. It used to be all gay um, male. Yeah. Wow. Like 95%. And those numbers have evened up a lot. It wow. took a long time. Yeah. But they started seeing other people making money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I would like to make money. <laughs> Why aren't we selling lesbian fiction, the lesbian romance? And then all of a sudden, now I'm starting to see a whole bunch coming from TradPub, where before yeah. there was nothing. Yeah. So, so um, your journey to being a librarian, did it come from, was was there a, a time, and you said you wrote a book. It sounds like it was a little bit more academically leaning. Um, is there is there a writer inside of you that wants to write a novel? Or are you kind of thinking in that direction? Or <laughs> your expression says, hell no. <laughs> I wrote a lot. I have got yeah. files and files and files and files and files wow. of writing that I did as a teen. But now the idea of being a working author, uh, I I know too much now. <laughs> I yeah, wrote yeah. one book and I was like, you know what? I don't know that I could do this as as a job. Wow. Yeah. So, that's a that's a that's a great takeaway too. Honestly, there are a lot of authors out there that that have to make that decision of do I want to do this as a job? Do I want to do it as a hobby? Um, you know, do I have one good book inside of me? I, it's it's something you've got to figure out for yourself. It's uh, a lot of work, and and part of that also not. is knowing so many authors and seeing what they go through, and they love it, and they can't help but to do it. Like yeah. I don't have that drive. Like. I can't do anything but write. If you don't have that drive, I think it's not for you. Robin, what a a beautiful summary. Um, I've been going through a really hard time this last month. A lot of people know I've had to back off the podcast a little bit. Um, I'm I'm running out of my own personal funds to do this whole fun experiment. And um, I was talking with my wife the other other night, actually just last night, in fact. And I, I said, like, kind of think I should quit. 
all signs point toward, I'm just not, I don't have the stuff. Something's wrong. It's been so long. It's been such a hard fight. And at the same time, I looked at her and I said, um, I think I have a mental illness because even after I've already settled on quitting, my brain is starting to say, Hey, what else could you do to make this work? <laughs> you have that drive. Like I, I yeah. can't not do it. And yeah. I've, I've heard other authors say that they're, you know, with varying degrees of success, some are super successful. Yeah. Um, some are struggling like, like you, like others. And they're like, I just, I can't not write. I mean, yeah. even if I have to have, I have a friend who every morning um, gets up and, you know, he posts his word count, but he's doing this before work. And then after yeah. work, he's still like, he just can't not. Yeah. So I think if that's your situation, then that's your key to keep going. I love that. That feels like a perfect place to, to, to wrap up the conversation. What I want to say in closing then is uh, how can we help you as library patrons, what's what's the message that you want us to hear as readers? Because uh, libraries ultimately serve readers. And so I'd love to know what we can do for you um, that is replicable across all different library systems to just make a major impact and revive libraries. Because it's a fight. Listen, it's it's a huge fight. Omaha tried to to like strip funding from our libraries because of our our, our mayor. Um, may she be uh, de-seated soon? Because <laughs> seriously. But anyways, what can we do to make a huge impact for libraries? So overall for libraries, I would say use your voice, write letters. We are hearing a lot about, and I hear you about not getting political, but I will just say we're hearing from one side of an issue all the time about how we don't want this, we don't want this, we don't want this. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, libraries are still fulfilling their mission to serve the whole community, not the loudest, not the ones yeah. who are most angry about other people having books. So write to your library and tell them that you do support what they're doing and what they have on the shelves. and. You know, just don't let one side be the entire conversation and mm -hmm. let other people hear that what they're doing is appreciated. And we do want what you're doing. I would say as a collection development librarian, what you can do is put in patron requests for things that you're not seeing, whether it's I want more lesbian romance or I want more immigrant fiction or I want more books about vampires that, yeah. that don't fall in love, but are actually scary. I want more horror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Non-romantic vampires for, yeah, for a change, please. Vampires, vampires <laughs> that are going to kill you. I want more of those. <laughs> Put in requests so that people will see that there is an audience and kind of break off from ordering the same old things. We're still going to order that stuff but we might look in a new direction and mm. uncover a, a new vein of things that haven't been on our shelves. Yeah. Phenomenal. So, so glad we connected. This has been an amazing conversation. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me your time today. Thank you for having me.
Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?